for me, it was, it was my giant F you to my depression. I'm not just depression or I'm not just depressed. I, I am greater than or, or more all-encompassing than, than just this thing that I experience. Hi, I'm Tim. This is We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit. We're having conversations with people like you and me about their strengths, their weaknesses, their ups, their downs, and everything in between. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today I'm joined by Gordon Corsetti. He's a son, a brother, manager of men's officials development at U.S. Lacrosse, and founder of Mental Agility, which is a website uh, that shares methods to help those with and without mental illness live more fulfilling lives. That that is quite the mission to be on, Gordon. Um, you know, it's a simple sentence, but that's no easy task. It's it's not, and it's one that uh, it took it took a little while for me to settle on on what I wanted the um, the purpose of the site to be, and now it's turning more into a into a life's work. Um, and, and I felt that uh, it, it encapsulated everything that I was I was going for, but I didn't just want it to be you know tips for the mentally ill to to live well. Uh, I think the the benefit of uh, a lot of the therapy that I've been involved in over the years is that it can help anybody with a brain. And since that's pretty much every other human out there, it, uh, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> these are skills and these are lessons that translate um, to anybody um, of any socioeconomic class, any living situation, any country. Uh, we're all human at the end of the day. Absolutely. I am a firm believer in that. The name of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I So you... Um, you know, you've suffered from depression, you've had in, in your past suicidal attempts, and you've shared this story before we hit record. I was mentioning, I was reading the article you wrote in 2018 in the U.S. Lacrosse magazine, and I want to read an excerpt here because this part, there's a couple parts that really struck me, but I want to start with this one. You wrote, I'm at peace with the part of me that hates myself. I have more agency over it than I ever did. It just took a hell of a lot of ups and downs to get to that point. And I want to talk about those ups and downs. But that line, that sentence, I'm at peace with the part of me that hates myself. I was just unpacking that. I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading it. So there's an acknowledgement here that there's a part of him, I guess a part of us all that, you know, sort of works against ourselves and is almost not, I guess it's that angel on one side of the shoulder and devil on the other. Um, so you're suggesting that and acknowledging that, but then suggesting that you're okay with it and you almost can work together with it. Um, I just, I love that. I, that's such a, a beautiful sentence. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that, that that struck you in that way. It's, it's um, the, the manner in which I was hoping that that message gets across. And it's, it's one of the things that I still have to almost on a daily basis still uh, remind me. I, I mean, I deem what I, I go through um, as my, my permanent recovery um, in very much the same way that uh, I'd say uh, plenty of friends of mine are, are, are alcoholics and they continue their recovery in that way of just saying like, I'm always an alcoholic and I'm saying, I'm always going to be depressed. Uh, it's the, you know, the relationship that I've had with my depression considering from when I was first introduced to it when I was 15 and didn't know what this was you know, it's, it's this uh, P 
piece of me that I, I can't get rid of. Uh, and it's also a piece of me that's given me a, a significant amount of strengths um, in my professional and, and, and personal lives um, that other folks, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, don't get to um, benefit from too readily. I, you know, my depression lets me think extremely de- deeply on a lot of subjects um, because I have a lot of practice thinking very deeply and negatively about myself. So it's a matter of it's been a matter of, of changing um, how I relate to my depression uh, and, and how I can use it um, in ways that are positive for, for my day-to-day uh, recovery. Which is, it's fantastic to, to get to that point. And I'm sure it's still tough to maintain that point, but I'm so happy that you're, you know, you've been able to get to that point. Um, going back, uh, growing up in Atlanta, um, I'm always curious. I'm, I'm a parent of, I got a nine-year-old and a five-year-old, um, a boy and a girl. And so I always think about the parents' influence on kids now. And so I'm always curious, what, what did you learn from your parents like growing up? Were they the partners with you? Were they, you know, were you the, the rebellion, the rebellion, the rebel, um, you know, kind of running away from them? Like what was kind of your relationship there? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting cause I've, I've certainly covered this particular question, uh, in a lot of different ways with, uh, uh, plenty of therapists and group therapist leaders as well. Um, and it's, it's one that I, I always enjoy speaking on cause I have a very good relationship with my parents. I had a very, uh, positive childhood, you know, middle, middle, upper, upper class, never well, wanted, never wanted for anything, um, both in terms of like material things, but also just love and affection from, from my parents and them, you know, stressing that I do, you know, always do something type physical. Like there was never an option to like not go ahead and do something. You, the, the kind of mentality of the family was that we were going to, we were going to do things. We were going to stay active. We were going to have some passions and, and try different things and develop those passions. Lacrosse were was your one of them. parents like physical, like they enjoyed physical activity. Were they kind of like <laughs> advocating for that? They did. Absolutely. Um, my, my dad was a, was a longtime lacrosse player, played at Marist college um, in the 1980s, started a lacrosse league that I played in uh, down in Atlanta, uh, along with a whole bunch of his former college buddies that moved down for work. Uh, and my mother, who's never been an athlete, but she's a master carpenter. Uh, so I, I grew up with the, the sounds of, you know, my dad cooking in the kitchen and my mom just, you know, ripping uh, plywood and two by fours down to make something um, or renovate some part of the house. And every now and again, I'd, I'd get a, uh, you know, I'd, I'd wake up, my mom would hand me a hammer and say, we're going to go knock down this wall now. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so As a kid, that must have been, I, for me, I think, and a lot of kids, I think that would be just a amazing thing for mom to say. Were you excited by that, or were you kind of like, "What?" Oh yeah, no. It it's um, I I I got into uh, you know that was that was the norm for me. Was this you know not quite so much you know you know my dad would do all of the cooking, uh, you know my mom would do all the home renovations, and I'd be in there kind of learning from the two of them on 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 both things, and but also getting to do like I was a big martial artist growing up. That was that was my thing was taekwondo and kickboxing, jujitsu, and and they. You know, my mom drove me to that every single day and, and sometimes twice a day and uh, just to, to keep a, a passion that I had developed going. Um, and it was just it was a great 
childhood. I mean, that's the, uh, the, the one of the things as I get to say is I'm, I'm a bit of a poster child for genetic depression and that I, I have no trauma or, or, or bad history or bad parenting that I can blame for all the stuff that happens inside my head. It's uh, I, had, I had very encouraging, very loving parents who um, made it okay. My mom always said, you know, she, she marched to the beat of a different drummer. Uh, I think my dad does as well. I do, my, my younger sister as well. We're all very unique, uh, but we're all corsetis at the end of the day, and we support one another. I, you mentioned that you're your poster boy for genetic depression, and you know, I almost I want to thank you for that almost in the sense that I think, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but I, I do think there's such a still, you know, people don't want to talk about mental illness. They don't want to talk about depression. They don't want to understand depression. And I'm not even claiming that I understand it 100%. But for you to be able to say, hey, I had an amazing childhood. My parents were 100% supportive of me. My sister was supportive of me. Things were positive. And I'm still suffering from depression means it's a real thing. This isn't something I made up. This isn't something yeah. anyone ever makes up and can be cured by the environment. So I, that sounds really weird, but you know, I'm almost, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of glad that was your situation because it, it adds, I, oh, I don't that's terrible to say, but just that like, it, it's so strong to be like, hey, you have to pay attention to this. There's no bullshitting here. Well, it's, it's that. And uh, the other thing that I look to is, is that I, I certainly realize how fortunate I was uh, to grow up in the manner that I did with, with the parents that I have. Um, and, and how they, they taught me over the years, but it's also, you know, I look at this as, um, you know, how much worse could, you know, my mental illness be, or my general life be, if I did not have a, a fairly stacked deck of cards in life to begin with. Um, and so I look at that and a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is individuals who are not as lucky as, as I was starting off or through middle school, high school, college, whatever, um, who, who didn't have the resources I had to pull on. Um, that is, you know, I, I had to stumble around in the dark despite, you know, I didn't know I had depression for, for very many years. My parents didn't either. We, we, we just kind of navigated this as, as, we, as we all were learning. Um, but now that we know so much more about mental illness, uh, and, and how it arises both genetically, but also environmentally, um, somebody who has to deal with, you know, extreme poverty and depression. Like I can't imagine the, the difficulty that is. And, and the thing that I try to do is not to um, equivocate, you know, one situation versus another. I just go with the same fact of it's all terrible. And when I speak to students or when I speak to parents um, and I speak to them, I, I'm telling them, I, I don't understand your pain or uh, what you feel in any way, shape or form. I can't. Um, but what I can say is that I I can feel a little bit of your pain as a pale reflection of what I've experienced. And I, I, I just say that because I, I want to honor the fact that, that people have valid feelings and valid experiences, but that I can't always touch exactly how it is that they're feeling um, and, and to keep that respect. That's so kind of you to approach it that way. I think that's the, the best way to approach it. So speaking of, of your pain and, and what you feel, so it was around 14, 15, um, I think it, I was watching that video you had on the lacrosse site and you said around 14, 15, you started kind of waking up in the morning and getting what you would call whispers. Uh, and I, I just, the visual of that I, I love. Um, is that kind of when this idea of, or, or sort of the sentiment of depression started to kind of creep into your mind? 
Uh, yes, I mean it was. I mean, right, right in the smack dab in the middle of puberty and and the start of high school. So um, already fairly tumultuous times uh, for any young 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 man to be in. Um, but also, it, it was just a. It, it was insidious. It started very slowly. I can't pinpoint a day or a particular time of the year. I just look back on this time and remember that you know before the start of, the, of 14, 15, I was fairly happy-go-lucky. I'd be as normal of a kid as you could, checking off all those boxes. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it felt like all of a sudden, but just over a long period of time, I started withdrawing more and more and isolating more and more. And the problem for my parents and, and, as, and the couple of friends that I had is that I'm a naturally quiet, introverted individual. Um, there is, I just, you know, I'll prefer my own company and that of a book and my cat over large crowds or even, you know, just going to a bar and, and hanging out. Um, so the, it didn't really seem like there was much of a difference. It's just, Gordon's just quiet. And so being more quiet, never really, um, got anybody's, you know, warning radar going off about like something could be wrong with me. Um, but around that age, it was the weirdest thing was experiencing these thoughts of worthlessness, these thoughts of, of not wanting to kill myself right out of the gate. Um, but just I'm, my life isn't worth anything or I'm starting to burden other people with my existence. Um, those types of, that's a, that's a fairly heavy thing to deal with at any age, but especially as, oh, yeah. as a teenager trying to navigate the social world of that, trying to maintain grades, trying to do sports stuff. Um, it was, it was one other Herculean effort to, to, to maintain, um, a, a facade that I was doing okay, or at least like any other, you know, you know, normal high school kid would be. But the thing that messed with me and looking back on it, I, I can laugh at it, but then it was, it was very real to me. It's, I thought that what I was experiencing was the normal consequence of growing into adulthood. So what I, I, oh, wow. yeah, I, I, I thought, and it's, it's weird because, because I remember having these conversations with myself of just like, this is just what being an adult is like. Every, everybody I thought has these exact same types of horrifying thoughts. They're just dealing with it so much better than I am. And as a result of that, my life is clearly less meaningful than theirs because I can't, I can't manage this. I can't feel like I'm barely holding on. And that thought process seems very logical, actually. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. So if you're feeling this going into high school, I mean, I could see where you're just like, well, this is what growing up is. Yeah. And, and then the, 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 probably the worst aspect of depression from a, a, is just how it can close you off from other people. I mean, being as social creatures as we are. Um, but the, the feeling that you have this intense secret that nobody can understand, uh, and, and not only that, that you, you should not tell other people, um, that I, I battled with for years because it didn't feel like something I should, I was able to disclose to anybody. It just, this was, this was a solitary thing that I had to hold on to and, and bear. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't allow a light to be shined on this and I couldn't let anybody know uh, because as soon as I did that, I'd be burdening them even more than I already was. So it just, it continues to eat itself. Um, and it just, it, it digs a, a pretty deep hole in you. Do you think we've gotten better at that, at the, the idea of it is okay to talk about this? Like, do you think nowadays you feel less like, Oh, I don't know if I want to bring this up. I, I'm hoping the answer is yes. But I, I mean, as someone 
yourself, you know, experiencing this. I, I wonder if that's really the case. It's it's a really difficult question for me to answer because on some days I'm like, yeah, no, we're doing great. And on other days, I'm like, no, this is the stigma is still there. I mean, the stigma is yeah. still a piece of it. Um, I, I think one of the biggest fears outside of just dying um, that any other human has is, is losing our faculties, right? So the the, the idea that um, uh, you know to, to to have a discussion about something feels like you're going to like bring that into existence, you know, as as ridiculous as that thought may be, that's a it's a human fear, right? And I'm seeing a lot in the in the talks I did give with schools that that students and parents they know about this, like they know that depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, suicidality, um, all of these things are are part of the human condition and need to be talked about. They can't just be swept under the rug or, or, or hidden. Um, it's just currently right now, I think the public conversation is very strong. Uh, certainly we're seeing that with, with plenty of social media and a lot of what celebrities put out there and the unfortunate you know, deaths that we've had in, in the celebrity or, or well-known uh, people's world. Um, but the the private conversations, the the one on ones or the small group conversations, I'm still not sure those are happening yet. Uh, I think we're we're still at a, a working on a critical mass of raising the public's consciousness about uh, the issue of mental health that we make it comfortable for children to go to their parents or kids to go to their friends uh, or parents to, if need be, commit their kids and not second guess themselves as much. Um, that that I think is is the the next big piece of um, mental illness advocacy and, and suicide prevention advocacy as well. And that's fantastic too, that you are speaking to groups and students and teams and professionals. And like I said, especially students and, and children, or at least, uh, you know, humans of a younger age. Um, I mean, the impact that you are making on them, I'm sure is just enormous. So I'm, thank you so much for doing that. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's my Pleasure to do it. it it's it's weird. I, I spoke at a, a middle school parents night about two weeks ago, and um, I, I I do like to try to add some levity to a fairly serious topic of, of, of suicide prevention. Um, as as you know, um, my sense of humor is one of the things that have, has carried me through this. So I have to be able to make light of some things again in a, in a respectful way on that end. But I tell folks, I'm just like. I'm socially anxious in just about every social situation you can you can think of, but I'm not anxious when I do public speaking, and I have no idea why. It's just I can I, I work with it, and and I can I, I like the fact that I can you know choose what I want to say out of my mouth and 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 hopefully impact some individuals. And and I've been fortunate that um, you know the schools that I've been able to speak to, the groups, the, the coaches I've been able to work with, um, just teaching people a little bit more about how the mind works, how it's evolved. Um, and how really it's difficult to live in the modern world with a Stone Age brain. That's one of my you know, go-to ways of explaining how we're having so much difficulty with, with mental health that we're realizing now is that you know, we're just physically not equipped for, uh, for how uh, challenging and fast-paced the world is now. And um, we need to find some better techniques to be able to educate our young people, but also educate our our everybody else to, to, to live a little bit more stress-free. <laughs> I love what you said about it's difficult to live in a modern world with a stone age brain. That's a, that's a great way of looking at it. Well, it's, it's a challenge, right? It, it's, it's the, yeah, it, it's just, it's, it's tough to, 
and that's the thing that I see about kids is they're so pressure filled. They, they, they don't know what they're supposed to think. And so they go with the, the, the short term option, which is generally the worst option on that. And that's certainly where, where I came from. I go to an extreme of, of behavior experiences. Um, and I'm hoping that by sharing my story on that end, it shows kids that no, there's a couple, there's a lot of different options that they can choose on before going to the, to the most extreme in, in, in either direction. Absolutely. So you, Going from those whispers, you know, coming into high school, starting to experience this gradually, where, like, how did that, I don't know, I don't want to say escalate, but how did that transition into, a, you know, a suicide attempt? I, I'm, and forgive me, you know, it's, no, you're, I, you're I almost feel bad talking about it, you know, which is, no. I don't know, maybe silly, but, um, I, I've uh, believe me. I've 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 had plenty of conversations with myself about it. You are you can say however you want. I'm I'm not going to take it any which way. Um, it's it's a it's this is such a weird conversation to still be having um, that we're still collectively as a society trying to figure out how to have it. So let's go with the bumps. I'm good with that. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm just curious how I, I'm trying to. Um, I want to better understand like for you, what you were feeling in that journey between the beginning whispers and then how that, you know, eventually transitioned into, I guess, you know, so bad that you're like, this is it. I'm, you know, I, I can't continue with this. So it's, it's, um, again, it's one of those things that, that builds over time. But the biggest thing that, that it was for me was I was already an introvert and, and um, I, my battery recharges when I'm away from people and, and, and can kind of settle my thoughts and, and, and organize how I want to go about, you know, my next couple of days. Um, and that's fine for me, but there's, there's a healthy degree of, of introversion. And then there's what starts happening when you get into a medium to severe depression. And then even worse, when you get into suicidality is, um, you know, in my, in my case is I started withdrawing from everybody. Like if, if I had sometimes had a goal when I woke up in the morning that I wasn't going to say anything to anybody. Like if I got through the day without saying a word, that was like a good day for me for some reason. And for, being such social animals, it, that's just not good for our psyche. Um, and it's certainly not good for a, a, a young man who's, who's developing um, and trying to, uh, to, to work his way through high school. Um, I had nobody with which I could uh, talk about the feelings that I was having uh, or the lack of feelings that I was having, the numbness that I was experiencing. And then that just compounds on itself. It's, it's, it's a nasty form of interest that, that gets out of hand really, really quickly. Um, and after... I'd say, you know, I mean, three years of that, you know, 15 to 18 and, and I'm, I'm in my se the senior year of, of high school is, is when the, the anchor thought came in of you can control how you leave this world. Like I, I felt so out of control with everything going around. I had nobody that I could go to, or I felt like I had no one I could go to. Um, but suddenly I had something suicide that was that, that, looked like a reasonable option for me. Um, and, and when you're in that type of, of a mindset, when you're that sick, uh, it, it's, it's a very appealing idea. It's a very appealing option. Um, the, the thing that ultimately moved me to, um, a plan was, I mean, my, my plan was to, to uh, wreck my car. 
that's, that's what it was. Um, because I didn't want my parents to think that I had killed myself. I, I was trying to like find some way to ease their future pain. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to wreck my car. I'm not going to wear my seatbelt. I'm going to make sure it's enough of a, uh, there was a big cliff uh, with a, a short guardrail that I knew that driving home that I could, I could go over and, and not wearing a seatbelt. I'd hit the ground at, you know, 60 miles an hour. And that'd, that'd be it. Right. Um, and I planned that out for like a good six, seven months. And then until, until my, uh, I was waiting, um, for a really good sign that said, you're not meant to be here anymore. So I was waiting for like this, this one little moment where I could say that, you know what, no, all these thoughts are true and I, I, I should end my life. And that moment happened in the lacrosse practice. My buddy just absolutely dusted me, uh, broke my ankles, however you want to say it. And, uh, and I, I took that small failure as evidence of my life in, in its to- totality was a failure. Um, and that's when I, I decided I was like, this is, this is what I'm going to wind up doing. And it, it wasn't until, you know, my friend had, uh, saw me later that day that, uh, that he was able to coax that out of me and, and got me my first therapy appointment and, and my first introduction to, to treatment. That's wow. I, I didn't realize the part that stuck out to me there is that like you have the the plan in your head and like you've kind of come to this point where you decide you can control this event in your life, but you still seem to um, almost be waiting for like a final justification or like a final trigger of like, even, even like in your mind, it seems like being ready for that and being prepared. You almost needed like one more coaxing event or something. That's really interesting to me. I didn't never thought about that. It uh, well, I'm I'm a I'm just a planner by that. That's kind of my nature, and uh, so I, I planned out every little detail, and and then it was just then it was a waiting game, and then that's actually paradoxically, it's and it's one of the weird things about uh, suicidality that 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 uh, is still I think a bit of an unknown for for people who are maybe caring for a friend or a family member is that you know when all of a sudden every you know you, I got a lot more cheerful after I figured out my the plan that I was going to have because you know, suddenly there was much less pressure on me. So it's like you start seeing people give away their possessions or, or, or selling a whole bunch of stuff or, or, or major changes in behavior from, uh, you know, prior it's, they might've made a decision that, that there's going to be a plan down the road, um, whether that's a week from now, a day from now, a month from now, whatever. Um, I actually, I, I you paradoxically get happy, um, because you've, you've, you've made a decision. You're just waiting at this point in time. Um, I know that that was the case for me, but it's one of those warning signs for uh, suicide prevention that uh, you start seeing marked changes in behavior in an individual you're concerned about. It's time to have a conversation of, hey, are, are, are you okay? Yeah, that, that makes total sense. You were in the Marines, right, for a period of time? <laughs> for a hot second. <laughs> How did you end up in the Marines? I mean, that's amazing. Um, no, but, you I, know, I, considering the, the topic here, it seems like... Um, I'm curious how you, you know, what, what made you kind of go that route? Uh, well, I'll, I'll be clear on this one. So I, I made it to Marine boot camp. Uh, so I never got all the way through. I never, never earned the, uh, the okay. title, the title Marine. So I'll be uh, clear on that, that piece. Um, but ever since I was a young kid, like I was one of those kids who like, I saw the, the Marine Corps ad in the, the movie theater, the guy climbing the mountain and slaying the dragon and all that stuff. And I'm like, Ooh, 
I want to be that guy, right? Like, it's so a pretty I, damn I, good ad. Yeah, it's it's oh yeah, it gets it gets all the the checks all the boxes for like little kid one and like action and adventure for sure. And and I kind of held on to that that idea, and I, I trained in martial arts all the way through middle school and high school with a lot of former military and, and active duty, you know, police officers and and guys in the army and, and, and marines. And for a long time, I had wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Like that was like I was gonna I, I was going to serve in some capacity. Um, and then I uh, get to college, and I start realizing I'm like I'm doing well in college, but it's just not at all. Like, I'm just like, this doesn't seem to be for me. It, it's just not my thing. Um, I'm not excited about any of the, really the classes I'm doing. Uh, I just felt like I was treading water. Uh, so I was like, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to drop out and, and enlist. Um, and so I did that when I was 21. Um, and I made it to, well, the, 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 I think I could have been a pretty damn good Marine, uh, had I been allowed to have my antidepressant medication in boot camp. <laughs> that was the, uh, I was, I was advised and this is the, the, the part like I made all these decisions. So I, I, by no means shirked the responsibility. Um, I lied to, uh, the Marine medical staff, um, at, at intake on the advice of, uh, one of my recruiters. Cause he had asked me, he's like, Hey, you have any mental illnesses? Do you take any medication and all the stuff that they do in, in, um, uh, when you're going to enlist, I'm like, yeah, I take Paxil and I've had depression for years. And he's like, ah, can't be on that. Don't tell our, our psychiatrist that when you go there. And in my head, I'm like, okay, that like a 21 year old, not thinking clearly, like I, I just wanted to be a Marine. So I'm like, okay, this is the little hurdle that I got to jump over uh, to go do that. Fine. Um, so I, I, uh, uh, cold turkey, the medication I was on. So that wouldn't show up in any kind of blood tests and lied to the psychiatrist, uh, through the medical intake. And then 30 days later, I find myself on Paris Island holding a, you know, an M16, you know, getting shouted at and shouting things back and, and then having a, uh, my, my first experience with panic attacks ever, uh, on the floor of, a of, of the barracks, um, along with the rest of the platoon. Um, it was a, a horrifying experience to go through um, that while I was panicking and severely depressed at the same time. So this medication that had been helping me um, remain stable going off of that and then going into such an extreme environment, um, not a good recipe for success. I think if I had been able to still keep on my antidepressants uh, through boot camp, I think I probably would have made it and, and I'd, I'd be, like I said, a damn good Marine. Um, but that just wasn't, uh, wasn't what was in the cards. And 30 days after that, I'm, I'm processed out and I've got a DD 214 and a whole bunch of other guys telling me, it's like, you'll never have a job again. Like, this is the end of your life. This is like, I did not get a, a positive send off. Cause you know, the folks there, they want to make Marines. They don't not want to make Marines. Oh, wow. That had to have been hard. I mean, the state you're already in to be leaving there and to get almost discouragement instead of encouragement. Um, I can't even imagine. Was it, was that tough? Extremely. I, I didn't, I mean, it, it took me years to, to really get over that. I can look back on it now as, and it kind of feels like just this weird, bad dream. Um, and it's, it's also, you know, part of me always kind of goes like, you know, uh, what if I had done it right? Like, what if I'd stepped down off the medication with my doctor and then, you know, gotten to do all these things. But again, I wasn't thinking all that clearly. I was thinking with the mind of a 21 year old and, and thinking about what I wanted, not really the best way in which to get there. Um, the, the, the tough part after that was it's like, you know, I, I come back and I'm, I'm, I'm fried. I've been living in a barracks for now, two months now, and, uh, effectively, you know, just cleaning, 
different <laughs> parts of the barracks and, and getting yelled at by a whole bunch of folks who uh, effectively have to babysit a whole bunch of these um, no long, these, these failures to become Marines, right? So um, there's, there's a processing out platoon, which is folks, people who got injured uh, severely enough where they're not going to be continued through training uh, or had some type of disciplinary action or failed some type of background check or whatever they get processed out. And we basically just did all the, the, the cruddy jobs that, that nobody else is going to make uh, a, a recruit do, um, which isn't, isn't much. Recruits have to do pretty much everything. Um, but the, the challenge for me was, was coming home from that and being like, you know, I had so much invested in, I, I, I was going to be this Marine and, and the identity of being that became something that, that I desperately wanted. Um, and to, to not be able to achieve that in a fairly spectacular fashion in my end. I mean, um, it, it's, it, it's, it was incredibly disheartening. And then for, you know, just so many, there, there just wasn't a, a great wellspring of, of support from, you know, that particular community because it's boot camp. That's just what it is. And when I came home, it's like, yeah, my parents were, were supportive and all that, but I, I couldn't, um, it took me a while to dig myself out of that, of, of being like, I'm never going to be this. Like that's there's a stamp on my file that says I'm never going to be allowed back into this. I've already screwed the government over once before. Um, so now it's it's how can I how can I make a a, a life out of at the moment a, a college dropout who's got a, a you know a, not a dishonorable discharge but not an honorable discharge either. Um, yeah, it, it was it was difficult. There was a lot of times where I I went to bed thinking I'm I'm. There, there's no point in, in going on tomorrow. Oh, that is so tough. You you mentioned earlier that you've found a lot of strength from your depression. You you mentioned one of them being be, being able to think really deeply about everything. I'm curious what what were some of those strengths other uh, other strengths that you you've realized from this. The the thinking deeply one is is probably the most uh, the one that I I. I work with the most. It's that I can zero in on details and, and, and that combined with, I'm not so sure, so sure if my perfectionism is part of the depression or if they're to- totally separate things. Um, but I'm very much a perfectionist by nature and, and no matter how good I do at anything or, or the accolades I might get from other people, I'm going to find the the flaw in the, in the thing that I did, um, or didn't do right. And use that to inform, to make a better product or a better thing the next time around or, or speak more, you know, effectively, you know, at my next gig or whatever that might be. Um, so I'm always in this constant process of self-evaluation and the, the, that I do think does come from the depression bit of, of saying like, you're just not good enough or what you're doing is not good enough. So how can, how can I make it better? How can I make it, uh, you know, hit this mark that, uh, this arbitrary mark that is in my head that I never quite reach, um, but how can I get there? Um, and that, that for me is, has given me a good amount of success in my professional life because, um, you know, I, I dot every I and cross every T that you can think of and, 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 and then some more. Um, so I, I, I put out extraordinarily good product and what I do, and I'm proud of that, but then that also comes at a cost. Uh, you know, that, that comes at a cost of, you know, stress on my end of sleepless nights of, uh, repeating the same work over and over again until I, you know, slight variations until I get it just right. Things where, you know, I, I've very often let perfect become the enemy of, of good, right? And and a lot of my 
uh, you know, work in therapy over the years has been, how can I scale that back? How can I lessen the voice um, of depression or at least move it to some other avenue of my life where I'm not so consumed with making this thing the best possible, you know, you know, product or speech or whatever that I'm giving, but can it just be good enough? And that's the thing with depression is I'm, I'm keenly aware of what's not good enough. Um, so knowing that I can, I can approach the opposite a little bit more, um, than I think some, some people can who, who don't have depression. You mentioned therapy a couple of times. I, I'm curious what, what are some of the techniques and, and tools you've used, you know, since those first days till now to get you to this point? Um, what, what were some of those things that have enabled you to kind of harness this? So the, the first kind of therapeutic modality I was introduced to was, was cognitive behavioral therapy. It's kind of the gold standard for, for um, empirically based, research-based um, uh, mental health therapies. Um, and the the idea behind this, the the bedrock part of of what's known as CBT, is to recognize negative uh, thoughts, recognize, recognize the cognitive distortions that are inside of a thought. So the the idea of um, one that I get from from students all the time is I if I don't get an A on this test, I'm going to fail this class. And if I fail this class, I'm not going to get into a good college. If I don't get into a good college, I'm not going to get a great job. If I don't get a great job, I'm going to be homeless on the street uh, and I'm going to be hungry and then I'm going to die. Right. So that that thought process all from I'm not if I don't pass this exam all the way to I'm dying uh, is is best known as catastrophizing in, in the in the cognitive behavioral therapy model. Um, there's also things like negative filter, which is effect sounds like what it is of only seeing the negative that I'm, I'm certainly keenly aware of. Uh, there's personalization, which is taking stuff of just not instead of like, uh, I'm worthless or I'm awful, um, as opposed to like maybe the thing, like I didn't perform well. No, I, I am bad. I'm, I'm the bad one here. It's not whatever I was doing. Um, the one that I, I personally like the most is called emotional reasoning. Uh, and it's my favorite because I can write it down anytime I'm challenging the thoughts that I have. And I'm, I'm, I write this stuff down. Part of the, the, methodology is that you you write the thought that you're having <clears throat> so like i'm a terrible person right and you write that distortion emotional reasoning you're creating some space between the thoughts in your own mind uh, and then you write a, a challenge statement against that thought um, that bypasses the the um the cognitive distortion so i'm a terrible person emotional reasoning i'm gonna write instead no i'm 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 a valued individual and i have friends that care about me period and i may have to do a couple of of affirming statements to get past that you know initial um negative thought um but it's it's much easier to kind of logically attack um, those thoughts when you you have it all written down in front of you um but emotional reasoning is is my favorite just because it's if I feel it's true, it must be true, which is not. And that's where a lot of, you know, that's where I got in trouble as a kid. Uh, that's where I still can get in trouble as an adult, like the natural kind of human thing of I feel it must be a real true thing. So it, it absolutely is. And so if I feel I'm a terrible person, that must mean I am. And that's not, that's just not the case. And it's, it's challenging that thought and being able to, um, you know, have some, uh, skills from therapy to be able to write these things down and know what these distortions are um, that allows me to kind of step outside of myself and my thinking pattern and, and ruthlessly attack the stuff that isn't working for me. I think that that idea of it 
I feel it, so it must be true, is, is such a universal, like you said, human um, attribute, I think. And it's, I imagine for you or anyone suffering from depression, what would make that so much harder? Um, because like you said, it, if we feel it, if it's, if it's in our psyche and it's in our heart and we really believe it, uh, it's got to be true. You know, like how, how could it not be? Exactly. I mean, we, we have a, uh, a, a saying like, I, I just came out of a, <clears throat> a 90 day treatment program, um, where, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about all the feelings that we're having. We're constantly checking in with how we're feeling, um, which is, is a good way to just kind of always know where you are mentally, um, but also emotionally. Uh, but the thing that we kept on saying was that feelings are valid. They may not necessarily be true. Uh, so we would never invalidate somebody that says, I, 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 you know, I, I hate myself like, no, okay. That's, that's a valid feeling. And we're, we're, we feel for you on that end. Is that a true statement? You know, are the, are the reasons behind that, that statement that you gave really true or, or is this just what the disease, the illness, the sickness is, is doing to your, um, to your brain. So you can't quite perceive things accurately. Um, that's what we're trying to, trying to bring it an, an objective lens to a very subjective experience that we all have. I love that. I just wrote that down. The feelings are valid, but not necessarily true. That's such a, a great way to frame it. And that's why I like talking about this kind of stuff because these, these are lessons. I mean, I've, I've been in therapy for the last 15 years and, and, and long-term my, my goal is to become a, a therapist and specialize more with working with young adolescents. Um, but I feel like I've picked up so many useful, just human skills <laughs> that, yeah, that, exactly. that I wasn't taught, you know, I wasn't taught a degree of, uh, of emotional intelligence in school. I was, I was taught how to, how to think, uh, and, and, you know, how to write a paragraph and how to do math and, and how to do a research paper. Um, but I wasn't taught how to check in with myself or how to empathize. These are all things that, um, we, we expect happen as a natural course of life. Um, but that's, that's not the case. Again, I think it's a consequence of, of our modern environment is that, you know, for, you know, in our evolutionary past, we, we lived in small bands of like a few hundred people at the most. And so you got to develop these deep emotional connections with several people and had people who would be able to check in on you far more regularly. Now it's, you know, we, we know thousands and thousands of people, you know, the, the kids that I speak with are connected with more people than I can imagine being connected with as a, as a 13 year old um, with an Instagram feed, but they have, uh, they have no depth to that. And then they start feeling that, you know, you know, it's just about what gets put out in front of, of, uh, you know, the world on either on social media, or it's all about these surface level conversations. And, and there's, there's that lack of regular human, um, uh, emotional training that maybe our ancestors went through as just as a matter of their day-to-day -day lives that I think we've lost a little bit in our industrialized modern age. I absolutely relate to what you said about like, you know, not being taught emotional, emotional intelligence in school and just not really not getting those skills. Um, I, I feel like I was the, the same way and only recently, um, you know, starting to get in tune with that and learn that. And honestly, you know, mine also coming from therapy, um, not for depression, but from originally from doing couples therapy, going through a divorce, but then starting individual therapy and then just continuing that because it turns out it's great. Uh, just, <laughs> yeah, I've, 
Yeah, in a previous conversation uh, of uh, on this podcast uh, with Tracy Samantha Schmidt, we were talking about how it's like uh, like vitamins, like like the same way you take vitamins, you know, to boost your physical strength. You you go to therapy, however often, to to boost your mental strength. And I just, you know, I'm so glad you bring it up. And I feel like I'm actually probably late to the game, but I I just feel like everyone should know about therapy, and you don't have to go, you know, whatever's right for you, but understand that it's not like Mad Men where it was frowned upon. <laughs> like this is a good thing. Well, and that's where, again, the the unfortunate bit about the stigma does come back to bite us. Um, yeah, Matt, I, I remember that those scenes from Mad Men, I was pissed off like at the therapist <laughs> when I'm watching this because I'm like, this is not what it is, but that's what it was. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's the, you know, in the same thing that, you know, I, I recently did several rounds of electroconvulsive therapy and it's not what they show in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's not even close to that. It's, but these things are so frightening because they're, they're so secretive. Um, and, and we don't have enough people telling about kind of what they are now, but, you know, I, I take it from, you know, I, I used to, um, you know, when I was training in martial arts, I, I was the punching bag for a lot of up and coming amateur fighters in, in, in North Georgia. Um, and I just remember like the therapist to me is like your corner man. It's, you've got somebody who's a neutral partner in your corner who you can bounce ideas off of and can see the things that you might not be seeing when you're in the pocket trying to cover up and do whatever. That's that individual who's not under your same amount of stresses, who's going, who's naturally going to be able to think more clearly than you about what it is that you're living in. Um, so I, I, I can't stress the, the value of, of having a, a quality therapist in, in your life for any degree of time. That's a great quote therapist is your corner man. I love that analogy. And yeah, it really, it's just, and you know, I, I do think it's important. Everyone has different uh, needs and different frequencies. So, you know, not prescribing, go see a therapist twice a week for everybody or anything, but that it's just, you know what it is for me that, you know, you go back to that idea of um, learning emotional intelligence. For me, part of that was just understanding, truly understanding that simply talking about something to another human being can change the game for you. For me, especially, it, it changed the game completely. And it's such a simple thing. I mean, you don't even have to honestly go to a therapist, like just find a good friend. But just this idea of talking about it changes everything for the better. There's a, I used to tend bar and uh, the, the joke is that bartending is a recession-proof profession. Because when people are happy, they go drink, and when people are sad, they go drink. And <laughs> and but but what's the what really is behind that? No, you're 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 going to go and 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 have a chat with an individual over the course of, of a couple of hours, and and is it really the alcohol? Probably a good bit of that, but but is also the that human interaction that um, is is the bigger catalyst toward people um, either being able to absorb some like really good intense news or to be able to offload something to somebody who, whether or not they can give you advice or not, it's, it's that, like you said, that, that act of, of just voicing it, putting it out there of not having this internal war inside yourself, um, makes finding solutions that much, uh, more accessible. I, I would, I would say that it's, it's been my, the, the good, the, the good therapists I've had have done much less talking over the time, but have, have asked better questions that have gotten me to say something. And then I go, huh? Oh, I could think of it like, this. so it's, it's a lot of it is self-discovery with a guide, um, in, in therapy. At least that's, that's been my experience. And it's just that, that piece of 
we're, we're social animals, man. And, and, and when you, when you take that away from us, um, bad things typically happen. But when, when you make that social connection, even if it's in a professional realm like therapy, um, good things are going to happen more often than not. Your description of self-discovery with a guide is exactly my experience too. So, um, awesome. yeah, and that's what I love about it is like you said, it's, it's more about building that introspection and that emotional intelligence with someone who is there, like you said, as your corner person, they're there to be your coach, to guide you. They're on your side. They're here for you. Um, and just, you know, using all that to, to kind of fuel, fuel your growth. Th- this reminds me of, there was another piece of that 2018, the article you wrote in U.S. Lacrosse Magazine that I love. You wrote, I remain alive despite my brain's best attempts to kill me. I use the intruding and malevolent thoughts to fuel my permanent recovery. It took me a long time to realize that I don't suck at suicide. I succeed in living. And I just, I love that. You have beautiful (laughs) words, by the way, just beautiful words. Um, But I just, I love that idea of, again, you know, and I think depression, you're coming at this from the depression angle, which is, you know, extremely intensive, I think. But I think even if you don't experience depression as a human, that there are always things where you're, you know, that devil on your shoulder is still, even though it's a part of you, it's still trying to work against you. And I just love how you explain that, you know, you can actually use that and work with that to actually fuel, you know, further growth. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that that you like that. That was my, the, my favorite piece of, or my favorite few sentences of, of that entire piece. Um, and, the, and the one that there's a reason I, I ended the article with that because it's, uh, I felt it was a, a fairly powerful send off, but it was also kind of like, for me, it was, it was my giant F you to my depression. Um, like kind of my last little bit to say like, no, this is, um, I am, I'm not just depression or I'm not just depressed. I, I am greater than, or, or more all encompassing than, than just this thing that I experience. And the, the thing that I've, I've, I think I've learned the most, um, that I still need refreshers on from time to time. Cause you get lost and, and these things happen, life happens. Um, but the, the ability to externalize my depression into a, into a, into a, another force, as opposed to thinking that it's I'm fighting against myself. Um, that's tough to do. It's very difficult. I find to argue with myself because I like to assume that I'm always right. Um, which is a difficult argument to get into. You're you're never going to get anywhere. Um, but I've, I've made my, my depression an opponent. I've made it something that I, I, I know how it moves. I know the way it likes to attack. I know how it approaches me in my weakest moments. Um, and I know also the, the strengths that I have to regularly work on to, to keep it at a manageable level. And some days it spikes, uh, some days it's not a problem at all. Um, other days it's just this kind of weird background noise. Um, but the thing that, that I continue to work on is that, um, I, I am more than X. I am, I am more than my depression. And even if on my worst days, I may feel like this is the only thing I am, uh, it's, it's still you know, worth it to remember that, that I've got a lot more around me that I can use to, to battle it. That is a amazing, perfect note uh, to leave us with. And Gordon, thank you so much for taking the time. This conversation has been, I've learned so much and awesome. uh, yeah, I'm glad because then I know others, <laughs> others will learn so much, but, but thank you. Thank you for joining me today, but also thank you for 
what you're doing, um, sharing your story, speaking out, you know, literally going to the students and, and others and speaking about your story. Um, I can only imagine that you're going to make such an amazing positive impact on, on all, all of those folks. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for having me. It's it's been a, a real pleasure um, just to, to speak with you and, and also to get some. Uh, it's, it's always nice to hear somebody who's who's read my story and, and has been impacted been in, in in a meaningful way. That's what I I had hoped for, uh, and so it's, it's always very gratifying to to hear that that's uh, that hit the mark. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app. Rate and review us, and share this episode with a friend. Thanks.